KMTT. Kimitzion Torah. You're listening to the Arab Shabbat program, Arab Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Mikest, Shabbat, second Shabbat of Chanukah, Aleph, Tevet. And I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Arab Shabbat program is Lulu Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. As usual, the the preparation towards the Erev Shabbat program is involved with deciding what to speak about, and I did mention speaking about Chanukah last week. We'll see where things go. Uh, I, I do want to speak about something from the Parsha, and we'll see how long that takes, and whether that leaves us time to discuss Chanukah at all. Yosh- Yosef's Redemption in this week's Parsha, I would say, is a classic example of, if not the classic example, of Yeshuat Hashem Keheref Ein. The salvation from God is like the bat of an eyelash. Here's someone who's been sitting in prison, we're not exactly sure for how long, but certainly for over two years. We know that two years transpire from when Yosef explains the dream of the, the dreams of the Sarmashkim and the Sarofim and Paro dreaming his dream but we don't know how long he was in prison before that so in any case two years from the point that Yosef thought he had a good chance of getting out of prison two years pass two years is a formidable amount of time which would allow one to give up hope. It's not, uh, you know, it takes a little while to, to run the paperwork, a couple of weeks, and the bureaucracies, so it'll take a little while to get out, or, or in practical terms, until the Sarmash scheme feels comfortable again to, to speak to Paro, because, you know, he was just in prison, he's not going to, you know, get out of prison and the next day speak to Paro. Two years is a, f- a sufficient amount of time that Yosef gave up hope that the Sarmash scheme was going to do anything for him. If he was going to do anything for him, he was going to do something for him within a reasonable amount of time. Two years is an eternity for someone who's sitting in prison and does not know if or when he'll ever get out. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, in one day, Yosef is taken out of prison, he's washed up, shaved up, dressed up, standing in front of Paro, and by the end of this conversation with Paro, he's second in command in Egypt. That's quite a quantum leap, if I ever heard of one. Most people who are in prison and are hoping to get out and have no idea when they are getting out, and we should always mention Gilad Shalit and Jonathan Pollard in this context, <coughs> um, they'd be very happy to be free men. They don't need to be the second in command of the country that they were imprisoned in or or the country that they're going to. They're just very happy to to get out and be free. And we should all hope and pray for that to happen soon and speedily. The danger of Yeshua Hashem Kiharifain, well, let's put it in two different terms. What 
Yosef was believing and thinking during that time period is unknown to me. If he believed Yeshua Hashem Kaharfine and every day he woke up and said Yeshua Hashem Kaharfine, Yeshua Hashem Kaharfine, and believed that any day he could just come out of prison, there's probably nothing wrong with that. Why? Because there was very little for him to do. Yosef made his investments. He made his investments to try to get a, to to try to throw some sort of bone outside of the prison that maybe someone will notice his talents, and he did that. That's what he did with the Saramashkim. He told him, don't forget me, mention me to Paro. Fine. Now there's nothing for him to do. Maybe there is a, some way of digging a tunnel. He was in prison. What can a person in prison do? Except for hope for Yeshuat Hashem Kaharafayim. The question is whether Yeshuat Hashem Kaharafayim is something that we live by this knowledge in our heads, or if it's something that we keep packaged away in a deep place in our hearts and minds for a dark day, for a dark period, but we cannot let it at all be our modus operandi. What do we mean by that? Let's break this up into, on a national level, and on a personal level. On a national level, there are times when Yeshuat Hashem Ke'erfein, you know, standing at Kriyat Yamsuf, when it didn't look like there was any hope, (coughs) pardon me, and the Egyptians were on one side and the sea was on the other side, suddenly the sea split open and there was was salvation. But this is a very, and not to minimize Kriya Yamsuf, a very local salvation. And again, it comes in a situation where Am Yisrael is helpless in any case. They're not able to fight the Egyptians, and they're not able to run away. The only place they can look to is to God to save them. And He did. And here Yeshua Hashem Kaharafayin. But when we're talking about processes, and we're talking about fixing things on a long-term level, we can never talk about Yeshua Hashem Kaharafayin. When we talk about the birth of the State of Israel, we're talking about perhaps people will want to say a hundred years before, but certainly decades before, of building institutions and an infrastructure and a framework (coughs) for which the state of Israel could be born into. So that at the point of Yeshuat Hashem Keherifayin, at the point that (coughs) the state of Israel was declared, that was an event that happened at a bite of an eyelash, but it's certainly not one we would call Yeshua Hashem Kaharafain. It's something that took many years to plan, and of course, there was nothing conclusive at the time when the state of Israel was de- declared. We were in the midst of a war, and the war took waged on for many more months. 
we could talk about the Six Day War as Yeshua Hashem Kehirafain. But the process that had to come before that of building an army was a long process, not a short process. And certainly the process of holding on to that Yeshua is an ongoing process. Similarly, if we go back to Kriyat Yamsuf and Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the <clears throat> salvation of being saved could happen at a, at a second. But the ability to take that salvation and do something with it and build something out of it could be a very long-term process. And we certainly won't go into discuss how the, the generation that left Mitzrayim, the fact that the Yeshua was so quickly, that the, the Yeshua, the salvation came so quickly, left them immature and unprepared for the challenges that they had to face. And therefore, God had to delay the salvation of going into Eretz Yisrael by 40 years in order to grow a generation that was matured, prepared to go into Eretz Yisrael. Certainly on a personal level, Yeshuat Hashem Kehara has to be something that has to be placed in its right place. It's not something that we can bank on. We have to learn how to solve our own problems. We have to invest in the places that we need to invest. We have to make long-term plans to solve our long-term problems. And then we can hope that we'll have unexpected help along the way, help that we didn't bank on. We can hope that maybe we'll have a turnaround overnight and that investment that we made many, many years ago will suddenly mature to something significant. A job opportunity will come out of the blue. A job opportunity we were hoping for, gave up hope on, it'll come. But that can't interfere with our dealing with the situation. And again, I stress that Yosef is in a position where he can't do anything. And so therefore, if he lives on a belief of Yeshua Hashem Kehara and that came to him, ultimately, in a momentous way, that's okay. Because he has nothing. To, there's nothing for him to do in prison. And if B'nai Yisrael, when they were at Kriyat Yamsuf, were praying and hoping for some miraculous intervention, that was okay, because there was nothing else that was going to happen at that point anyway. They weren't going to negotiate with the Egyptians and, and still acquire their freedom. The Egyptians weren't going to part as friends. It was either going to be death or some sort of salvation. In that sense also, when I say this cautiously, <coughs> our belief as the Ramam tells us, that the Mashiach could come any day, has led certain Jews to a complete lack of activity in their striving for redemption. And this is the basis of certain anti-Zionist Haredi positions. 
Uh, Mashiach can come any, any day, so we don't have to do anything. So we don't have to move to Eretz Yisrael, and we certainly don't have to support the building of the State of Israel. Mashiach will just come one day, we'll all get on a plane, we'll all work it out. Well, that's not how things exactly work. At some point, there has to be a building of a process that we build from the ground up, piece by piece, little by little, and then, Yeshua Hashem Keher, fine, when God will decide to intervene and give us a push and give us a quantum leap that we can never have acquired on our own, God will do what He has to do. Like the Six-Day War. We're out of nowhere, from our little tiny borders, where we thought we were headed toward another massive destruction a few short years after the Holocaust, we in fact enlarged the territory of Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> or enlarged the territory that Am Yisrael was in charge of, of Eretz Yisrael. But, but we can't act in a way of Yeshua Tashem Ke'arafayin. We can't act B'chol Yom She'avo. We have to act that we have to build up everything from scratch. And this is true in our in our national lives, and this is true in our everyday lives. We have to make a long-term plan in our everyday lives. If Yeshua Tashem Ke'arafayin comes to us, if we merit this, if it's the right thing to come along to come along with the way, matov. But it doesn't allow us, it doesn't exempt us from taking responsibility. So Yeshua Tashem Kehrafayin, yes, it should something that has to be in our toda'ah, in our in our awareness, but not in the forefront of our awareness. It can't be our modus operandi. It's not in our hands. It has to be placed on the side, on the bottom. And now, from there, just a brief word on Chanukah. Chanukah is a holiday, and here I'm talking about the experience of the holiday of Chanukah, not something historical right now. And I'm not talking about how quick the, the Maccabim defeated the Egyptian, the, the Syrians, the Syrian Greeks. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in our experience of Chanukah today. Our experience of Chanukah today is a unique experience amongst the holidays, because all of the holidays interfere with our everyday lives in a way that we can focus on the holiday. Certainly all the Doraita holidays, we have a prohibition of Melacha, and even if we don't have a prohibition of Melacha and Cholomoed, we do have some sort of prohibition of Melacha and Cholomoed in Eretz Yisrael, Certainly people are more likely to take off work, to shorten work, not work at all. We have to be in the sukkah, we're not eating we're not eating chametz. We're certainly interfered enough halachically with life that we notice the holiday. Purim, and if we want to talk about other significant days, a one day experience is always something that allows us to focus in on what we're doing, and certainly Purim as opposed to Chanukah, we're all involved in Purim, the full 24 hours of Purim. Kriyat Megillah, Mishloch Manot, Sudat Purim, celebrating. Purim is an all-encompassing day. 
Chanukah is eight days where we have to light a candle at night, we have to say halal in the morning, and that's it. We go to work, we can go to school, if relevant. Here in Eretz Israel, typically there's no school on Chanukah. Chanukah is a holiday in which we have to, and here there are some similarities to Chagah Sukkot, but not in, not, not something to be said in one second. <clears throat> where we have to let the light of Chanukah shine into our lives, but as we live our real lives. If on Sukkot, we, and we've talked about this in the past, take mundane actions and make them into holy actions by doing them in the Sukkah, so that's easily done because we have the framework of the sukkah. We're sitting in the sukkah, we're making a bracha before and after every action. Here on Chanukah, well, there's no framework. There's a very minimalistic framework of knowing that it's the Chanukah holiday. And we light a candle, we say halal. But beyond that, we live our everyday lives with no interference whatsoever. And here is the true challenge of our everyday lives of knowing how to shed light on our everyday lives, out of making something meaningful out of our everyday lives. And in that sense, the experience of Chanukah, and I'm not saying this is the message of Chanukah, but I think it's true as far as the experience of Chanukah, is about making our everyday lives into a significant experience. This is something that I've spoken about often and before, and probably will continue speaking about, because... How we face our everyday lives is our ultimate challenge in life. Because our everyday lives are our everyday lives. They're every day. So on that note, Shabbat Shalom, Chodesh Tov, and Chanukah Sameach. Parashat Miketz. Parashat Miketz is a wonderful parasha. But has less material for what we've set ourselves to do that is to look for halachot or semi-halachot advice hanagot learn from the Pasha uh, I think on our own we could learn probably a lot of things from just the actions of the Giboya Pasha one thing that comes to mind which I've heard many times although I, I don't think it's not as far as I can tell found in Chazal is from the way Yosef speaks, Yosef was called Yosef at Sadiq, that Yosef always mentions Shem Hashem when he speaks. Paro says to him, to uh, asks him to explain his dream, and Yosef answers, Elokim, Yanet Shalom Paro. And uh, I mean, I remember when I was a child, I was taught that's the that's a marker, that's an, a, a, an example. For us to have Shem Shemayim Shalgu Bafiha. The name of God should be a part of your conversation. Just simple things of saying when you thank you say Baruch Hashem. Uh, but actually I couldn't find that is in, in Chazal explicitly. One thing that I did find, and it's a well known thing, it's quoted by Adam Fashim, and it's worth talking about trying to understand exactly what it means. Yaakov and when he tells the brothers to go back to Mitzrayim and there's already a, a famine in the whole land. And they're going to go back and bring back food. Why did Yaakov 
Yaakov sees that there's food in Mitzrayim. He says to his sons, Lama titra'u. The word titra'u is not immediately clear what it means. One of the questions is, what is the shoresh? What is the actual root of the word? You could, because it's an unusual form, you could ascribe it to the shoresh yarei, to be fearful. And he said to them, what are you afraid of? Let's go to Mitzvah and get the food. We could ascribe it to the Shavash Ra'ah to see. And that is what the uh, number of Medrashim and Gemara uh, explain. Lama titra'u. It would mean if it's from Lashon of Ra'o to see. Titra'u is interpreted to mean why do you make yourselves appear? Why, why don't have an appearance? What does it mean don't have an appearance? So the Medrash Rabbah says, Vayomer Yaakov v'anav lama titru v'amar lahem, Al totziu biyetchem perusa, v'al tikansu kulchem v'petach echad v'pnei ha'ayin. When you walk in the streets, don't carry bread with you. Don't put on an appearance. In this case of wealth, or of, um, of just having food in a place where people are hungry. It's a little bit different. You shouldn't, when you go to Mitzrayim, don't all enter through the same petach. They'll say a big, healthy family, ten brothers. It'll make a bad impression, meaning make a good impression, but that's a bad impression in a time when people are starving. Um, it says in the Medrash, this Medrash Rabbah, it says, which I assume means, and the normal interpretation of that would mean that it's not good for you. If people... Are jealous of you, people will see that you are well off while they are suffering. There's something called Ayin Hava, and that's not good for you. So that's like, it sounds like good advice. In, in the, in the Yaakut Shimoni, on the same line, it says, parnasa. Don't go out and in your hands, not a piece of bread, but, but food. Taromet. Ta'omet here means because of complaints. In other words, it will lead to dissension, to complaints, to people being angry at you. Again, what, what's wrong with that? It's not 100% clear. Um, but interestingly enough, the Gemara in Ta'anit quotes this, and not only as an explanation of Yaakov, but as, as an outright, it sounds like a halakha. I mean, it, 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 I, I think it is a halakha, even though it's obviously the halakha that results from good sense rather than from a gzerat hakatuv. The Gemara says nafyud in Tanit. Haulech mi makom she'ein mitanim. The makom she'mitanim. Let's say you come in the middle of the day. You come to a city where there's a fast, a public fast. Fast could be declared by the city authorities uh, because of some local uh, trouble. Right? There's something that's gone wrong. There's a, there's a famine. There's a pestilence. And so a certain city is fasting according to the decision of the uh, local authorities. You're traveling, you come into the city in the middle of the day. So you're not Chayv Al-Pidin to fast, because you weren't, it wasn't declared for you. You came in the middle of the day. Fast begins at the beginning. You can't even, technically speaking, you can't even fast. I mean, fasting has to be a whole day. You can't fast an hour. It's not called a fast. You're not eating, but you're not fasting. As, Ha'olech makom she'emetim, makom she'mitanim, Ha'reizeh mitanei mahem. The Gemara says, Ha'reizeh mitanei mahem. You should I'm being, trying to be careful how I interpret the degree of of obligation. 
The Gemara says, "Harei zeh mitane imahem." One should fast with them. Shachach ba'achal b'shatan. Suppose you forgot, and you ate and you drank. Very easy to forget because it's not in your mind. Al yitrae b'fnei atzibur. But you should still not make an appearance. The same word. You should, no, don't don't appear in front of the public. Ba'al yen hig idunim ba'atzmo, and don't uh, don't act in a comfortable or luxurious manner. Don't show them that you are well off. Yaakov said to his sons, don't appear to be satiated. In front of your cousins, so that they should not be jealous of you. So I assume that the pasuk is going on both of them. The halacha that one should fast for the same reason. And if you're not fasting, but just still so eat, in, eat, eat in private. Now the question is, what's really? Why is it wrong? So again, the midrashim we quite have seen that somehow it will be bound to your disbenefit. But I think from the Gemara, I hope it's clear. But my my inclination is to interpret that it's simply wrong. It's not that because you know they'll be angry at you and therefore they'll take it out on you, or even the ayin hara kind of theory. But it's just wrong to, if you are for some reason well off, and you don't plan, nor do you have to, nor is it possible to share it with the others. You don't want enough food to share with the others. So you eat and they don't. That's okay. But you shouldn't rub it in their faces. It's immoral in another sense. And that's, I think the Gospel says, it's not right that they should, not because it's bad for you if they're jealous of you. But it's bad of you that you create a situation where the people are jealous of you. The fact that God has favored you for one reason or another and you are better off than others, but you're obligated Alpidin to hide that. Because it's wrong. Perhaps you could say the following. It's wrong for people to be jealous. It's obviously true. Your kina is not a good midah. If someone has more than I have, I should not view that as as a problem. And if you do, you're Kina is a bad attribute and chances are you're going to be over on the tachmod of coveting what you don't have saying you wish you had it. The fact that, but despite that fact there's an, an, an obligation on those who have not to flaunt it. And it doesn't even mean to flaunt it in some dramatic manner to show off. Yaakov said to them don't walk on the street with a piece of bread in your hand because people don't have and it should make you feel very uncomfortable to do so. And the uncomfortability is because of the fact that it's really wrong. That, that's my take on this halakha. Rather than to interpret it as being sage advice because other people are jealous of you, then in some real or mystic manner, it will be bound to your, uh, uh, you know, not to your benefit. Um, so we say, it's this, I, we, I quoted this from three different places. The, the general idea is quoted in these three different places. Al-Titra'u, do not make an appearance of having what other people do not have. I mean, what other people cannot have. I think it's okay to wear a hat if people don't wear hats, but to have food if people don't have food and don't, and don't have the means of getting food is is a moral problem, not because you have it, because you're showing them that you have it. The technical halakha quoted in the Gemara, Shamagiyan makom she'en mitanin, makom she'mitanim, if you drop in on a bunch of people fasting, then you should fast as well. 
And that's recorded in Gemara as in a language which sounds like a actual obligation. He should fast with them. It reminds me of a famous story which happens to be contradictory. Um, and it's a story told of the Optav of Siddiq Rebbe of Avam Yoshua Heschel Meopt, known as the Oed Yisrael. Name of the Sefer which he authored, published after his death, called Oed Yisrael, Love of Israel, and a title he himself chose. He chose it for himself, not just for the book. That was his Midah. He was especially extreme even in his, his love of all Yisrael. But he was one of the early Hasidic Shavabayim, Talmud of Gemelech uh, Mizashansk. And uh, he was very much opposed to fasting. There's a, uh, there's a division within Hasidut between those who were Hasidim in the classic sense and therefore the idea of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays was natural to them as part of Vodat Hashem. But there's definitely this, this undertone in early Hasidut that's against things like that. And one of the prime examples of that is the Yopta Rebbe. So the story is told, most stories about the Yopta Rebbe were told by himself. That doesn't mean they're necessarily true, but it means that he, he thought they should be true. That was the example for the point he's trying to make. The story is told that he came once to a town with some of his Talmudim and there was a fast. And he knew there was a fast. And they told him right away there was a fast. And he ignored it and he sat there and he went to eat. So the Gabbai, they, they sent the Vav, sent the Gabbai to remind him, say, you know, there's a public fast going on in town. You shouldn't be eating. So he said, yeah, I know. And he kept on eating. I should point out that not only was the Yopta Vav opposed to fasting, he was very much in favor of eating. And he, he would say that everybody has their own particular avodat Hashem, their own way of serving God. And his way is eating. He, he ate a lot. So he ate on this day as well. Anyhow, when the fast day was over, he went to visit the Rav, but the Rav called him in. And the Rav gave him also, he said, how could you do this? It's a halacha. You, if you're just a stranger passing through, while you're with us, you should have fasted. So the Yopta Rav said to him, this is a classic Chassidisha Vot. I'm not, I'm neither asking nor answering how it drives with the explicit Gemara, that says the opposite. But the Yopta Rav said to him, you know, you're fasting because you have a problem. You have no food. The crop failed. And therefore you're fasting and doing tshuva and calling on God to help you. So I said to myself, you know, if I would fast and God would see how I make do without food. It's not even that difficult. Here I go a whole day and I don't eat. So God will say, they don't eat food that much. Obviously there's some reason why the crop failure took place. The question is, are they suffering? He said, well they're not really suffering. Look, they, they can fast, they go a whole day and they seem to be doing well. But when I eat, I show God that I, I, I can't go two hours without eating. I do it all day long. Then God will appreciate how difficult it is, what a tzara, what a trial and tribulation is for His Jewish people to be without food and to cancel the decree and send you food. I don't wish to comment on the uh, actual logic or the halach like ramifications. 
other story. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story. It's meant to be paradoxical. But it is, it is against the Gemara Tanit, and lest anyone think that I'm telling it merely in order to uh, denigrate one of the Gdolea Hasidut, the Yoyvisal, let me point out that the Yoyvisal is my great, 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 great grandfather, great uh, multiplied by seven, and I have no intention whatsoever of denigrating him. I actually like the story, but I, I do think it's against the Gemara Tanit, and Maybe that was either his gadlut or not his gadlut, but uh, for a particularly good reason that he had, he decided that it was okay to eat before them. What he was trying to tell them was that they should fast less and perhaps find other ways to come close to God. He didn't think fasting, in fact, was a way to come close to God, and this story illustrates illustrates the point. That's all for this week's Pasha. We'll be back next week in Pasha Dvayigash. Until then, Shabbat Shalom. Umevorach.